exactly where this room was, church tradition points to a place known as the Cenacle. And really, most people accept this to be the location because so many early Christians identified this to be the site. Now, it's on Mount Zion there in Jerusalem, and the building that's there now is a church, and it was constructed by the Crusaders in the 12th century. It's basically just a large rectangular opening with six vaulted bays for prayer. Now, since it's on Mount Zion, you have to remember that, well, this location has been through a lot. After all, in the year AD 70, Emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem, including everything on Mount Zion. But in the late 4th century, when Christianity became legal, they built a church at this location, and they called it the Upper Church of the Apostles. Now, many believe that many other biblical events happened here, such as the washing of feet and also Pentecost. Now, the Cenacle was taken over by the Ottoman Empire in the 1500s, so today if you visit there, you'll notice that there is Islamic stained glass and a prayer area pointing to Mecca. So, there you go. Now I have another place to add to my bucket list, and that's enough today for our Historical Minute. Let's pray. Lord God, open up our hearts and minds to hear your word as we take a look at the true meaning behind the Lord's Supper as we talk about the Passover this evening and what a blessing communion is. And, and Father God, as well, too, we just pray that the things that we hear from your word come alive and we can live them out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke 22, so if you are following along the Bible, please take out a Bible and turn to Luke 22. You can follow along on the screen. And we're doing things a little differently today. Um, obviously, you notice we haven't done communion yet. The reason we're waiting is because the section today is going to go over the topic of communion. And so we thought it would be um, beneficial and, and feel right just to, to have it right after we talk about the true meaning of what communion is all about. And so in chapter 22, verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And so the feast of the unleavened bread, the Passover, it all comes together. And it's a remembrance of, of what happened in the book of Exodus, when ultimately God delivered the people from Pharaoh. And that last um, Passover, what happened took, as far as the Passover and Exodus, what took place was the people of Israel, they had the Passover meal and they would have a lamb that they would sacrifice, put the blood on the door frames of their homes. And what happened? The angel of death passed over their homes. We see today that Jesus is a fulfillment um, of that Passover. But going back to the scribes and the chief priests, and we've talked about this, that, you know, in the um, church of Jesus' time, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the scribes, you had the priests, you had the Sanhedrin, had all these different groups. And a lot of times, they didn't get along with each other, okay? They disagreed. They had um, different power struggles. In fact, even today, Judaism still um, has different branches of each of those groups. And it's important to understand these groups because as we talked before, the Sadducees didn't believe in what? Resurrection. Okay, that's why they're so what? sad, you see, and the Pharisees, all about following the laws and all about being fair, you see. Um, each one had their own thing, and, and but now when it came to a common purpose, they found one. They all want to see who did. Jesus. 
because he's a threat to their way of life. And what's so you know, sad about the whole situation, this was supposed to be the church of God, right? But yet, the church of God wants to kill who? God, Jesus, he's God. And we can see how you know, churches can sometimes go in the wrong direction. They become completely corrupt, focused on power, focused on their own personal fortunes, their own personal agendas. But it says they feared the people. When you're living in darkness, you live in what? You live in fear. They were afraid of the people. They're afraid of the Roman government. They're afraid of Jesus. Is it fun to live in fear? These people are living in fear. Fear of losing their power, their control. One thing I've seen more and more as I go through life is one of the biggest challenges people have in this world is control. People want to control things. And I tell you what, the more you try to control things, the more things control you. That's how it works. And so they want to kill Jesus. They live in this fear. But here's another challenge. They're trying to do this at the time of the Passover. Now, go back to when Jesus was born, to Bethlehem. Was Bethlehem a big town? No. It said there, there was no room in the, what? Inn, which means in the whole town of Bethlehem, there was how many inns? One inn, okay? And what took place was, because of the census that took place while Kyrenius was governor of Syria, all kinds of people flocked to this little town, and it was overcrowded, and they couldn't find a place for Jesus to be born, except for in a stable, okay? Now, at the end of his earthly life here, he's in Jerusalem. Guess how many people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover? A lot, okay? In fact, Josephus said um, at one particular Passover, he counted that over 250,000 lambs were slain for the Passover. Quarter million lambs were slain in Jerusalem for Passover. And so you break that down to about one lamb for every 10, 12 people. There's over 3 million Jewish people in Jerusalem at the time of the fast Passover. And so the bottom line, the town was absolutely packed with people. In fact, even the fact that they could find an upper, upper room was probably amazing because I'm sure that um, the Airbnbs and the hotels and everything in that town were just completely packed. You know, it was just bedlam of people. But yet, here's a time when Jesus is going to be killed when Jerusalem is full of probably three to five, four times more people than what there normally would be. We read on. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Now, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, they're kind of doing this, you know, trying to get Jesus from the outside. Now, guess what's going on? There's someone on the inside now. Judas Iscariot. And who's involved in the process here? Satan. Satan is trying to assist these, you know, church leaders to get what they want. And so Judas basically is possessed. And here you have somebody who now for three years has had this amazing training from Jesus. But even for those in the church, a lot of people think, well, you're once saved, always saved. You can never fall away. Judas was on that inner circle. What happened to him? He fell away. Now what's interesting is that the one who took care of the money was not Matthew. You'd think he would be the one to take care of the money um, for the, the ministry they had, I guess you could say, because he was a tax collector. 
But he was not the one who took care of the money. Who did? Judas. He was the one who managed the money. And sometimes I wonder if that money got too important for him because we're going to see that money becomes a part of the situation. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Okay? Because he could see when the right time would be, when there's not a lot of people around, where they could try to capture him. And, and so they're going to see, too, they do it when? At night. Because they're, they're trying to secretly put him through the process of trial. They have to ultimately give, get the permission of the Roman authorities to carry out this execution. Now we go on to verse 7. A couple questions here. Was Satan and Jews before this time? We don't know. Obviously temptation was going on, but we see at this particular moment, um, it says he entered him. So we don't know for sure on that one. But obviously temptation is going on. Satan entered Ju Judas. It could be mental instability or demon possession. Yeah. I think what's interesting here is that it says literally who? Satan entered Judas. Now, think about this for a moment. Can Satan be in more than one place at one time? The answer is no. Why? He's an angel. Okay? He's a fallen angel. He carries out his work through demons. All right? There's a lot of demons, only one Satan. And it's believed that Satan was like an archangel. His name was at one point um, Lucifer. And he became, obviously he rebelled, became a, you know, Satan. If you, you know, is, and the angels that fell also became demons. We're going to see in Revelation that one-third of the angels fell to become demons. And the very fact that Satan entered Judas means that Satan wanted to take this one on himself. This was a big deal, okay? Now, most likely if we're tempted, we're not being tempted by Satan unless we're like Billy Graham or something, okay? Because probably demons tempt us. But Satan himself can only be in one place at one time. In this particular um, situation where there's possession, it's Satan himself who is taking charge here and trying to lead Judas on his path to betray Jesus. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Okay, that's the day when the Passover meal is celebrated. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent... Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Now, most likely, there's not a lot of real estate available, okay? Because so many people are converged in Jerusalem. But notice how Jesus takes care of things here. He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And so remember, Jesus has a 12. Within the 12, there are three he focuses on more. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. Here we have Peter and John without James. 
And what I want to point out here is the systematic nature in which Jesus did things. It's all set up. He says, you know, hey, Peter and John, I want you to go take care of things. You're thinking, where are we going to find a room? Where are we going to find the, all the stuff we need? But guess what? Jesus has it all set up. They find this guy, the room is all set, and Peter and John go up there and they prepare the meal for the rest of them for later that day. And so I want to point this out because sometimes we read through the Gospels, it seems like you know, Jesus was over here, then he's over there, and, and like, sometimes it seems like you know, it's kind of flown around, but it was extremely planned out. The details of his ministry were planned out. As I talked about before, the 72, okay, there's a 12, then there's a 72, they went where? To all the towns and villages before Jesus arrived, okay? One question I have, maybe somehow the 72 are part of this organizational system as far as what happened even in Jerusalem. Or even when, when Jesus got to Jerusalem, the people were already where? In the streets. How they know he was coming? Because the 72 prepared the way. And so what we see with Jesus is somebody who was extremely organized. Things were not left to chance. Then life is important to have systems, to do things well. And if you study Jesus' systems, they were not complicated but very well organized in a credible ability to delegate other things to different people, as in this situation here. Now in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Stop there for a moment. Jesus knows this. He's God in human form. The next day, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. He's going to die the most painful form of death ever invented by mankind. And yet he's saying to his disciples, you know, I've been looking forward to this time that we're going to be together. He's not thinking about what's going to happen to him as much as he's thinking about what? being with these people he loves so very much. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's that supposed to mean? Actually, the kingdom is going to be fulfilled over the next couple days. How? When Jesus dies and when Jesus what? Rises. Heaven and earth are going to be connected. Scripture is going to be fulfilled. The way to heaven is going to be completely open. And he took a cup. And we give him thanks. And he said, and by the way, they're going through the Passover meal. This is considered the third cup. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, a reiteration of what's about to happen over the next couple days. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this remembrance of me. The first part of the words of institution. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as... wait. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. 
I want to take some time here and talk about what took place there. The Passover is transformed. The Old Testament now is coming, becoming the New Testament. All along, the people had sacrificed lambs. They had gone through this sacred you know, celebration. But let me ask you a question. Do you think the lambs that they sacrificed in the Old Testament truly saved them? The answer is what? No. Jesus is the one who ultimately brings salvation to everyone. He's the one that ultimately even brought salvation to the people in the Old Testament. It wasn't through ritual. It wasn't through what they did to save them. It's because of what Jesus did. And now he's about to fulfill all of that. He's saying, you know what? I am the lamb. This is my body. This is my blood. In our website, we have some different resources. One is called um, God Connects, a series of videos that lays out what we as Lutheran Christians believe. And we're going to take a few moments to watch one um, focusing on this topic of the Lord's Supper. So please watch the screen at this time. God Connects. have to admit I love driving and I love going on a trip and I know there are many different ways for me to get where I want to go I could walk or ride a moped or take the subway but I love my car it's my preferred vehicle of choice you might be interested to know that God has some preferred vehicles to transport his forgiveness to us too one way is by hearing his message of forgiveness, the audible word of the gospel. The other is through what the church calls the sacraments, the visible words of the gospel. Because God wants you to know his grace, to hear it, to touch it, to taste it, to feel it. So you might be asking, well, well what is a sacrament exactly? Well, a sacrament is when God's Word is joined together with a physical element which also delivers His forgiveness of sins. Why should one take the Lord's Supper? Well, in the Lord's Supper, also called Communion or Holy Communion, Jesus uses the bread and wine to do something very important, to deliver His forgiveness to His people, to feed our faith. And it's very important to our spiritual life that we continue to regularly feed our faith. Let's face it, what happens when you forget to charge your phone, or to skip a meal, or worse yet, to forget to put gas in your car? Well, in the same way, it's spiritually vital to make frequent use of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is where Jesus meets us one-on-one -on -one and assures us that we are under His love and care. We receive forgiveness in that moment. Jesus himself said of the meal, This is given and shed for you for the remission of sins. It's not some mystical idea, but a real encounter with God in that we know that he has done something for us. Some people prefer to conveniently watch TV in order to get spiritually fed. But when you actually come into church, Christ serves you with his very own body and blood. You're connected to Christ in a real way. Talk about an upgrade. 
You know, the belief and practice of the Lord's Supper can sound a bit strange, even baffling, but it is no bizarre ancient ritual invented by the church. This was established by Jesus Christ himself. This also happens to be our third qualifier for what makes a sacrament. Christ institutes it. In fact, if you hear me say anything here to this, this is not something we do for Jesus. This is something Jesus does for us. So what are we eating and drinking when we go to communion? Well, more than meets the eye, that's for sure. This meal was introduced at the Last Supper just before Jesus' death during a Jewish celebration called the Passover. It was during this celebration that Jesus lifts up the bread and says, This is my body. And then the wine, This is my blood. In the Lord's Supper, you truly receive the body and blood of Christ. We call this the real presence. Now, some Christian churches teach that the body and blood is not truly present in this meal, so only two elements are there, representing a symbolic presence of Christ. Still, other Christians teach transubstantiation, a teaching where the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. There are again only two elements present in any given moment. But God's Word teaches us that God miraculously offers His body and blood to His people with the bread and wine. Four elements are present as these Bible verses make clear. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? These words of this Bible passage, they teach us a lot. When it says that the cup is a communion in the blood of Christ, we can see from this word that it is a union, a joining together. In the same way, the bread is in communion or union with the body of Christ. This Bible passage continues to speak to how the people communing together are in union too. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. Christians are joined with each other in communion. For this reason, the Lord's Supper is intended to show the unity of the people who commune together. Therefore, those who commune together should be in agreement about the teachings of the church. Now the next question, who should take the Lord's Supper? Well, if you're like me, you've probably had to follow a doctor's prescription before and head to the local pharmacy to pick up the medicine for a particular sickness that your body is battling. Just a quick survey of all the shelves lets us know we better receive the right medicine. You know, to get the wrong one, or none at all, it would lead to disaster, even death. Well, the good news is that our chief physician has some prescribed medicine for us all, his sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You see, we take our teaching about the body and blood of Christ seriously, because it is a serious matter that the scriptures makes clear. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So a person seeking communion with God, one has to be, well, Christian. <laughs> one has to have the mark of baptism and, and one has to have faith in Jesus. In other words, do you really believe this? Now, if all systems are go, repent of your sins. Examine your heart, believe that Christ is really present in his body and blood for you, and humbly receive the most amazing gift you will ever receive in this world. 
I don't know about you, but being assured that my sins are forgiven and that my faith is being fed, all that keeps me wanting to come back for more again and again. So that's one of 12 videos um, from the God Connects. And again, there's access directly through our, our website. So I encourage you to check that out. And you know, what a great summary of what communion is all about. And I want to follow up on a, a few of these things. When it, you know, it comes to communion, like he mentioned, there are three different beliefs in churches today. You know, some churches believe it's only a symbolic thing. Okay, it's just bread and wine. The question I have with that is this. Can bread and wine forgive you? No. Bread and wine can't forgive you. Um, so it's done more just like a remembrance, but yet it says in the Bible, for the forgiveness of our sins. Another view is called transubstantiation. In that view, the belief is that the bread and wine literally turns into the body and the blood of Christ. It's no longer bread and wine. It's the body and blood of Christ. In those churches, if they drop the host, per se, they feel it's dropped what? The body of Christ. You know, I... I um, I've shared, I think it was, it was um, on Monday, Thursday, talking about this same topic, that, you know, the, the wafers that we have, you put them in your tongue, what happens? They kind of dissolve, don't they? The ones who developed those, um, you know, wafers initially were Roman Catholic nuns, okay? And the reason they did that was because the, the priests were giving the people the bread, okay? And, and they were taking the bread and pretending like they were eating it, but they then snuck at home because they felt they were taken with them, what? The body of Christ, and they were worshiping it. And so the nuns got smart to this and developed these wafers that go right in the tongue, so they melt, and so um, they can't really take it home with them. They have, it pretty much goes right inside of them. That's where some of that history comes from. Now, our view as Lutheran Christians, we believe it's bread and wine, but through that bread and wine, who's present? Jesus. How? I don't know. I really don't know. In fact, I struggled at seminary with this because before I finished seminary, we had to sign off on a form saying that we agreed with every doctrine of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And for me, what I was struggling with, and I, I know some of you heard this story before, but what I was struggling with was I understood it's bread and wine. How is Jesus present? Like if I took the Lord's Supper and I died, and they did an autopsy on me, are they going to find some foreign substance, body and blood inside of me? I don't think so. They'll probably find bread and wine. So how's Jesus present? And I was teaching a group of confirmation youth at that time. I was in seminary. And I asked this group of, of um, seventh and eighth graders a question. How is Jesus present in the bread and wine? And this kid raised his hand and says, that's easy, pastor. He goes, he can be anywhere he wants to be. Oh, the light all of a sudden comes on. Where is Jesus? Omnipresent, Right? And so if he can be wherever he wants to be, can he be in that bread and wine? You better believe it. How? It's a mystery to me. But we take him at his word that there is bread and wine and somehow through that bread and wine, Jesus is truly present because forgiveness is only found in him. Now the word of God itself is powerful, right? But what makes communion and baptism special is that there is a physical element. In fact, our view as Lutheran Christians, there's three things that have to take place for something to be a sacrament. There has to, number one, it's going to be instituted by Christ, by Jesus himself. Number two, there has to be a visible element. And number three, a promise of forgiveness. Now with baptism, um, water's placed where? 
on the outside of us? Communion, where does it go? Inside of us. And when I think about that, it's like we're being cleansed inside now. It's a complete cleansing, but really it encompasses our whole being. The most important thing in our lives is to know this. Our sins are forgiven. That's essential, essential teaching of the Bible, that through Jesus we find forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, we will never get to heaven. To get to heaven, we have to be perfect. We're not perfect in ourselves, but through Jesus, we are made perfect. And when we take the sacrament, it's really like a hug of Jesus. It's like he's hugging you, saying, I'm with you. I love you. And I want to encourage us that as we take the Lord's Supper, that we take it seriously. We prepare ourselves. You know, some people have come to me and said, you know, Pastor John, I can't take communion because I really messed up this last week. My response is, you know what? That's even more reason why you need to take it. Because it's for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible does say, however, if, if you are in some type of unrepentant sin and, and refusing to confess it or turn away from it, then you might be taken in for your spiritual harm. We need to be repentant. We need to confess our sins to God and be honest with the fact, yes, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And so here at St. Mark, we offer communion at every service. Why? Because it's like fuel. Okay? Our car without fuel is it's not going to go anywhere. We need to continually be fed with the presence of our God through his word and through the sacraments and through communion. It's one of the ways that he touches us with his very presence. He assures us of the fact our sins are forgiven. The way to heaven is open for us. So I want to encourage us to never take this very sacred meal for granted, but to realize it's all about love, the love that God has for us and the love he's shown us so clearly through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of communion. We thank you for coming through that bread and wine and touching us with your very presence, of fulfilling the Passover meal, of bringing in the new age of the New Testament. Without you, Lord Jesus, nothing is ultimately fulfilled, but through you all things are fulfilled and our future is secure in you. And as we take this sacred meal, help us to realize that you truly are present, and we are sure of the fact that our sins are forgiven. We pray this in your name. Amen.